Hi everybody, this is Michelle Tillis Letterman and I just had a great conversation with Ryan about how mood memory moments make more money. Listen in. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. And welcome back to another episode. This one is geared to be awesome because I am here with Michelle Tillis Letterman. And Michelle, welcome to the show of the world of speakers. How are you doing today? I am good, Ryan. I'm happy we finally got our tech working. Right. Well, I mean, it's kind of a reminder of the fact that tech will always go wrong when you don't want it to go wrong. (laughs) That's often what I teach people is always have a backup plan because so many times the slides went out. It actually just happened to me where the presentation I was doing a conference, I was the keynote in Vegas on a stage and the slides just went out and all the people were scrambling to make it work again. And I just had to keep going. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll dig into that once we get your amazing tips. But before that, let's get to know who you are for the people that don't know about you yet. And I say yet because I think that people are going to continue to learn more and more about what you're doing because you're taking the stage, you're on TV, you're doing all these things. So where did it all begin? Did you know that you would be doing what you're doing now when it all started? Oh, definitely <laughs> not. I am actually a recovering CPA. Oh, one of those. (laughs) I'm one of those. I started my career in finance and I was the only woman on the bank's trading floor. I was the only woman on a global venture capital team. I did mergers and acquisitions. I was a heavy finance girl. So absolutely had no idea that this was my calling until it called. (laughs) Well, that's, you know, I'm hearing that from a lot of people and that's inspiring for those people who haven't gotten the call yet, but they... They maybe are looking for something else. So how did this call come in? Was it a cell phone call? Was it a (laughs) shooting star? What what was the big sign that the universe shared with you? It was a trip to Japan. And I was actually still working for the bank and my boss became the CEO of Tokyo's branch. And he asked me to go out and help the team out there adjust to his leadership style. So I hired a coach to go with me and I went out there and we were working with an international team of bankers and traders at the highest level of the bank. And I did everything that coach did and then some. And I said, oh my God, this is what I'm meant to do. So at the end of the week, with all of my confidence and maybe a little of a hangover, I went to the CEO (laughs) and said, I can do this. And he said, okay, you still have to do my hedge fund investing. You still have to do my budgets. But if you want to do this, I'll support you. And when you say this, uh, elaborate a little bit more. Was it just communicating, getting everybody up to speed on the new leadership uh, part of things? Was it taking the stage, communicating kind of products? When you say this, I can do this, what was the this? At the time that this was coaching, but really it was training. And so my evolution to the main stage of a speaker started through the training industry. And I started doing training programs for the New York and Tokyo branches of the bank on soft skills such as how to give effective feedback and how to conduct an interview and presentation skills and all of those things that we don't come by naturally. I was training in the two branches. Now, being a recovering CPA, I'm pretty sure that there's a a lack of soft skills because you're just using your your fingers to type in hard numbers. So (laughs) was there something in your, like, were you involved Uh, in a form of communication earlier on in life that you tapped into? Or was this just miraculously you you found the gift of gab on stage and training and all that? That's a great question. I actually was an accounting major, but I was a writing and a communications minor. Ah. So I flipped my minors and that became my major in life. I have always had a 
passion for teaching. And I actually had a big fear of public speaking, although I took my first class as a junior in high school and was told that I couldn't be heard past the third row. And I spoke a mile a minute and I shook from head to toe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the, the, all the beginner rookie moves, right? I did them all. And the idea of speaking in public was absolutely, you know, nauseating to me. So this is not something that I had a dream or a vision, but as a teacher, I loved. I just didn't want the paycheck of a teacher. So I went and took the finance career and, you know, ended up with a corner office on Wall Street. Right, right. But that wasn't my heart and that wasn't my passion. And so it took some time to bridge from that finance life to my current entrepreneurial state as a trainer and speaker and CEO of a company. And it started with that evolution of trusting my skills and continually educating myself. So that boss that was willing to put some faith in me would send me to training. He's like, oh, Michelle, I need a training on this. Go take a class and then come back and teach us. <laughs> How cool is that? So what was the best part of that opportunity? The ability to take in that information and know how to bring it back so that somebody else could absorb it and apply it. Now, I imagine that this helped with you being a writer. I know you have a few books out. How did writing your books tie into this whole story? Okay, so if we're putting a timeline together, I was in finance through the 90s. Okay. And in the early 2000s is when the transition began. I landed my first client, which was, of course, a finance company. It was J.P. Morgan. And my second client, Deutsche Bank, another finance company, Big Shock. In the early 2000s, I hadn't even incorporated yet. And I actually formed the business in 2004 and left finance in 2005. Now, my first book didn't come out until 2011. So it was always something that I wanted to do. And I had so many book ideas. And I was teaching a program for the MoMA, which is the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. And it was called The Natural Networker. And I would say half the class came up to me at the end of it and said, you need to turn this into a book, Michelle. And I said, yeah, 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 I'm thinking about it. And they're like, no, just do it. (laughs) And I thought, oh, well, this will be an easy book. I already have the class. (laughs) (laughs) As a fellow writer, you understand that I was completely deluding myself. Yes. Uh, So it was a long uh, process from idea to shelf, because I did do the traditional publishing route. Awesome. And now that book has sold every day for the last six plus years and is in nine languages. So is this the the networking book? That's the 11 Laws of Likeability. So, Michelle, are you a natural extrovert or did you acquire your extrovert skills over time? I think that I am a natural extrovert and I know a lot of people associate extrovert with networking. What I actually had to do was unlearn some of that extroversion to be more effective in connection. And what I talk about within networking is relationship networking, not traditional networking. I really... My entire platform is on the basis of connection, whether it's connecting to your team as a relationship-driven leader, connecting to your message as a speaker, connecting to your brand, connecting to your network. Everything is in the relationship. And that's what I really had to study to evolve that skill. And I can see how you've just taken that and you're probably a student of your own teaching and you uh, are out there actually implementing it. Now, you said this is sold day over day for six years. What I like about that is the fact that it's probably just as relevant then, if not more relevant now. Yeah. They call it evergreen. And it's true. This is, when I did my book proposal, they always ask you for those competitive books. And 
you know, how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie was on my list because those philosophies that were put out there in a different format and a different context in a different era are not so dissimilar from what we're putting out today. We just are applying them differently. We didn't have social media back then. We didn't have certain tools and resources that we can use. And it really is a lot of the same philosophies, but with a different twist. Right, right. I'm actually in the middle of reading Keith Ferrazzi's Never Eat Alone for like the second or third time. I I usually pick it up just because it's so refreshing to be reminded of that concept of how really, you, you know, it's all about working that network and just everything opens up from there. And what I, I actually, he was another one in my comparative books was, was his book, but I actually take a different philosophy uh, than never eat alone, because I will tell you, you're allowed to eat alone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I like that. All right. So tell me, tell me the spin on it then. What is the, what's the difference there? My feeling is that you have to find your productive energy. And if you are forcing yourself to do something that doesn't feel right or feel authentic to you, then the connections that you're going to make in those situations are not going to actually click. And they're not going to last because you're not really fully present. And I would rather you eat alone once or skip a conference once so that when you do push yourself the next time and stretch yourself to go, that you're finding the right energy to enable that connection to happen. Hmm. It's kind of the the concept of love yourself before you can love anyone else or understand yourself before you can understand someone else. Is that parallel to that? I am a big fan of Covey's and seek first to understand and then to be understood is one of my, you know, great philosophies of life. Yeah. I, I can see the correlation. And I do believe that you have to be in the right mindset to allow for positive things to happen. So it isn't so much of the love yourself first, but get yourself in the right frame of mind. Now, is this applicable to someone in their speaking career as well? I mean, is because I can see this parallel between you know, maybe people going through the motions of being a speaker or reading books and learning, kind of faking it until they make it and then making it stick. Mm-hmm. Um, is this type of advice really applicable for the speaker who do you encourage people to really stop before you get on stage and know what you're saying and, and channel that with the right energy? Absolutely. You know, there's, there's two sides of this question that I want to address. One is the fraud factor. So bring me back to that. Okay. But the other, the other is just to the message. I train a lot of people on being on the platform and being in front of an audience. And we all have this talk. I literally just had a CEO in my office and she brought me a five page speech. (laughs) (laughs) Double spaced or uh, single spaced? (laughs) Probably space and a half, you know, like, uh, and, and she wanted to read it to me. Right. And I said, I just want to understand what your intent is. What do you want me to feel? What, you know, And so she ended up not being able to deliver. She read it to me. And then I said, ah, here's what I hear. And then she needed somebody to, to tell her where her um, connection was. And it was a healthcare talk. And she was telling a story about a patient. And uh, I'm saying, I'm like, you have to remember Holly. And we started talking about Holly and, and she felt it. And so that's what I'm talking about, about connection to message and finding that right mindset. If you are just delivering words, you are not delivering message. And if you don't feel and believe and connect to that message, don't worry about exactly how the words come out all the time, then you will captivate and you will, as I circle back to my my original, you will teach. 
Right. So I'm going to bring you back to the fraud factor real quick because you wanted me to bring you back there. And how does that factor into things? I haven't heard of the fraud factor. I love alliteration, so <laughs> I'm hashtag super excited about it. <laughs> I love alliteration too, as you could tell from my company and my book. <laughs> <laughs> so the fraud factor is something that I think all speakers face at some point in their evolution. That idea of I don't belong here. I'm not good enough. What do I know? Why am I in front of the room? All of that inner self-critic. I will say it probably does happen to women more than men, but it happens to speakers across the board. And even somebody like me that I've, you know, I've done international keynotes, thousands of people, you still have those moments of, oh, I've seen another speaker and they're amazing and I don't do that. And what I want to say in terms of that connection piece that we've been talking about is to connect to your authentic style. I am not the speaker that says the same thing the same way ever. <laughs> right. I mean, people have heard my talk and they're like, it was so different this time. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it makes me think of a pinball machine, right? I mean, the multi-millions of different combinations, it's never the same, but it, at the surface level, it's a three by six foot box with the same levers and the same, only two input buttons, but the way in which you hit it and whatever atmosphere there is or how much attention you're paying to it, it dings and pings and pops different, but everybody is still excited about that game. Exactly. I like that analogy. You know, and so they might not get the exact same story or the exact same bonus, you know, within the ping pong game, but they get the experience. They get the, you know, how it feels and they, they leave with a mood memory around that experience. And that fraud factor comes up when you sit there and you start comparing, oh, I don't do that or they do that and that's good. There's a lot of different ways to be great on the platform. And what you need to think about is how you connect to your brand and your style and trust it and embrace it rather than forcing yourself into a box because somebody else is good too. Be your own pinball machine. She's a pinball speaker. You have to. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that going. But I think this is important. And what's funny, I oftentimes hear people think about authenticity and you have a slight spin, whether you heard or not, it was your authentic style. And I think that's an interesting spin on it because you know, usually people talk about being your authentic self and it comes out the same message as far as like be yourself and people connect with you more. But this idea of an authentic style is really like what type of pinball machine do you want to look like? And that I see ties into kind of a personal branding and sort of an overall picture where it's not as much about like here I am as a real person, but my real style is this. It's going to be flowing a little bit differently. I might bust into a rap. It might <laughs> be something over here. And I think that's a, a unique spin to the, have the authentic, hashtag authentic style. I like that. Authenticity is law number one of my book. So I love that you picked up on that. And I don't even think I used the word, but the, I'll never forget. I went to an NSA event and listening to a, a fellow speaker who did main stage at a conference for speakers and he was saying, don't go out in the audience if the audience is more than, you know, a couple hundred people and you need to stay up on that stage. And I'm thinking to myself, yet yeah, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I questioned myself and I went up to him and I said, you know, I just did a thousand people and I got off that stage at least, you know, three, three or more times and walked through the audience and threw things at them and got them talking to me. And, and I'm only four foot 10, so nobody could see me, but they were projecting me <laughs> up on the screen. And right. he thought, no, don't do that. Maybe do it once. Hmm. And that was his style and his opinion and his approach. And, and this is kind of circling back to our conversation about fraud factor. You question 
should I or shouldn't I? And anytime I say you're going into a should, stop, because that's somebody else. Mm. I love getting off the stage. I love getting close to the people. I love handing them the prize rather than throwing it from the stage because I also don't have a very good arm. <laughs> <laughs> Which you, 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 you learn your style, right? You, you throw it to the wrong person enough and you figure you got to go deliver it. So there's, there's an evolution to this process. You know, and sometimes it's fun when you don't make it because it creates energy in the room and everyone's trying to grab it and get it to the person. So it's those choices that make the mood memory. And, and this is what I would tell people who are sitting there thinking about, I don't know what my authentic style is or the shoulds are coming into your mind. Right. Or it's all should because they're starting. They're like, I read this. I should do this. I read this. I should do this. I talked to this person. I should do this. Think about the mood memory you want to create for your audience. How do you want them to feel after your talk? And some people want to be very thoughtful and some people want to create action. I want to energize and I almost want to create a vibration buzz of activity, of conversation. And if it takes throwing things and, you know, tripping, because I've done that too, um, not on purpose, <laughs> but, but I embrace it when those things happen right. because, because that's what they're getting with me. And so what I would say to everyone out there listening is don't worry about what everyone else is doing. Find your feel. The feel. I like that. Find your feel. It's almost like you're you're driving or something, right? Like you kind of feel within the zone. I mean, you know you should be at 10 and 2. You know you should stay in between the lines. But there are people who drive completely different with the same vehicle based on their their style, right? I mean, like if you're in a passenger seat, sometimes the driver is super stressful and you find uh, yourself looking for a brake pedal on the floor. <laughs> the other times you're like hanging on to the, you know, to the handle, but like excited about it, whether they take the road less traveled and whatnot. So one thing I heard you say, and again, my ears toned to the alliterations, this idea of a mood memory, how you want your audience to feel. That is so cool. So everybody out there, tweet at Michelle and myself. I'm at Ryan Foland and Michelle is at M. T-L-E-D-E-R-M-A-N and tweet us up using the hashtag mood memory and share with us what you want the mood memory to be for your audience. Because <laughs> as you just describe it, you're like, I want the buzz and I want the electricity. And it's like making me think of all the inner workings of this uh, pinball machine. You probably, you have the little drop spots and like the ball drops and you have the upper, which zing, zing, zings around <laughs> and the lights. And if you go to an arcade room, like could you reverse engineer? Could you could you first decide what your moon memory is, then reverse engineer? What is it that you should do to make it work? I like everything you said except the word should. Okay, okay, okay. I know. <laughs> I'm just kind of poking around with that. Let me rephrase. Could you first decide your mood memory, what you want that to be, and then reverse engineer it to what you can do to make it work? what the possibilities <laughs> are. It, that tiny little tweak, because again, I'm, I'm very sensitive to the word should. It's, it's something I talk about. It's part of the understanding authenticity is to eliminate your shoulds. You know what my mom always used to say? She mm -hmm. used to say, if shoulds and butts were candies and nuts, oh, what a world it would be. And so every time out of my mouth, it'd be like, well, what if I should do this? Or, or but, but, if, if, and it's like, <laughs> I kept like that rings into my brain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I have talked about it so much that my husband catches me now, too. He's like, did you just say should? I was like, oh, man. It's like your comfort with your um or awe that you're trying to get people away from. I like that. So this whole can, it really makes ownership to it. So you're not doing it because somebody else is doing it. You're doing it because you've decided to, and it's an action. Yeah, you're testing out some different approaches and just 
remember, mood memory is the idea that people, your audience will remember more how you made them feel than any particular thing that you said. Mm. Now, as a speaker, I know that you might not love that, but trust me, that feeling stays with them longer than the words. So the, the magic is when you create a message that can be shared through a moment or a story or a mood that elicits this feeling that reinforces what you're trying to drill down, right? Mm-hmm. That's the magic sauce. That's the that's the double whammy on the thing when you get an extra three balls and it's like the three ball chaos. You're just trying to keep them all up in the air. <laughs> I love your analogies. <laughs> well, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a fun visual thing. And I think that with speaking, uh, it's still so intimidating. It's like... It's like talking about summer school. No matter what, you're going to think about it as like something that you do because you didn't do something right. And so it's framing speaking in a way of a pinball machine or a sailboat or a piece of uh, dessert. Like it, I think it helps people, at least for me, helps to make it more accessible to people. Because, I mean, if you think about it culturally, there's always been someone who's been speaking or an orator or a storyteller in the whole history that we know. And it's one of the most fundamental I guess, jobs. So speaking can be super intimidating, but if you talk about it like it's a pinball machine, maybe it's not as intimidating to some people. You know, it's interesting. I teach public speaking still. I will coach people on getting in front of the room. I will do trainings on it. I don't do keynotes on on that. I actually like to do keynotes on my sure. my message and my platform of connection. But when I, I literally, last Friday, taught public speaking and, and they talked about nerves and I said, that's good. I still get nervous. And, and when we talk about intimidation, part of that is that fear factor of being judged and being evaluated. Right. That's human. That's a human like evolutionary uh, fear to protect yourself, right? Absolutely. And, and it's really funny because one of the reasons I wrote The 11 Laws of Likeability was because I don't always feel I was likable, you know, in my, in my youth and understanding what drives likability and what drives connection. And I had to learn how to accept that there's always going to be somebody in the audience that doesn't love me, that doesn't like me, that didn't like the talk, that didn't connect to it. And instead of hyper-focusing on the person that I've lost, focus on all the people that are with you. And it becomes a little less scary. Yeah, I, I love that quote. Uh, I do stick figure drawings, and that's one that I've done, which is not everyone will like you. And a stick figure on the stage and just one guy in the audience going, boo! <laughs> but it, you, the students that you have, because this, this whole anxiety thing is real. What do you share with them? I mean, you've talked about it's human and you get nervous too, but are there any tactics or skills or rituals that you go through to help you either process it or minimize it? There are so many, and I kind of put them in categories of physical, mental, behavioral, and I don't really talk about this one, but chemical. <laughs> okay. So give me, the, give me the, the top brass tacks for each one from a physical standpoint. What's the best way to deal with it? So physical depends on how that fear manifests for you. So are you a sweater? Are you a blusher? Are you a shaker? Are you a whatever it is that it physically manifests where it might be visible to another person? Because you have to remember, our fear is not always visible to the other person. And you need to understand what is visible and what is not visible. Because when it's not visible, like, for example, for me, it's that heart rate. Right. People can't see it. I still need to manage and control it, but nobody else can see it. And so that minimizes it already for us. Yeah. But the physical things, there's different tactics for each of them. You know, whether it's wearing dark clothing or, you know, I know some speakers that keep a rag because they sweat in their face. And so they just dab themselves every once in a while. If you are comfortable with how you are handling something, you make your audience comfortable with it. 
Ooh, that's a good one. That's a tweetable moment right there. Love it. Okay, so the physical, it depends on the physical. I'm, I, I don't want to say ailment, but I don't. Uh, so the physical aspect of what the way that you manifest it, whether it's a tapping leg or just sweating more often, there are specific skills with it. So first, probably identifying the physical traits that are showing, whether you're watching yourself or whether you're getting feedback from other people, there's like specific solutions or band-aids for that. What about the mental? I'll combine mental and behavior a little bit. So because behavioral is a little bit more of our habits and mental is our mindset. So with the mindset, there's a lot of techniques that we've heard out there, visualization, self-affirmation. A lot of those things are very effective. Um, seeking your cheerleader is one that might not be as well known. And I will never forget the first time I did an international speech. I actually brought my whole family with me. Nice. Uh, my sons were... Oh God, let's see. My baby was probably about eight at the time. And it was the first time I think they were actually willing to sit through a talk rather than like, you know, whining at the back of the room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was a very large audience. It was probably a thousand people in the room. And it was my first international talk. I was worried that I wouldn't translate to uh, this crowd. And my eight-year-old came up to me right before and he said, you're going to be great, mommy. And this was the technique that he gave me, which was seek your cheerleader, because right. I believed him. In that moment, I trusted him. I believed him. And I felt it in every core of my being that it was going to be great. And it was great. It was great. You know <laughs> You know what he did? He snuck an extra quarter in there for you. Yeah. He gave me the bonus round. Um, <laughs> so um, sometimes you just need that person nearby to give you that moment of surety when you might not have it a hundred percent for yourself. So these are different things that we can do. Visualizing the end, visualizing a moment in the talk that you enjoy, things like that so that you can feel it. Some of the behaviors act as if Earlier, you referenced fake it till you make it. There's a yeah. portion of my book where I call fake it till you make it real. Ooh, nice spin. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> because my thread through the entire book is the concept of authenticity. You cannot apply any of these laws of likability without that foundation and that thread of authenticity. Right. So fake it till you make it sounds really inauthentic. But if you, you know, you look at Cuddy's work and you look at some of the research about the power poses or or that inner critic and all of that, we can influence how we feel and how we think with the words that we tell ourselves. And if we act as if, well, what does a great speaker do? What does a great speaker look like? How do they kick something off? Now, this is not emulating and this is not the shoulds that we talked about earlier, but this is finding that piece that we can infuse into our own bodies and into our own approach that gives us that confidence to manage the fear. It's not emulating throughout the entirety of it something, but it might be a little tweak that we do here or there that gives us that boost. I dig it. Now talk about this whole chemical thing, right? <laughs> Is there going to be a, the next big scandal? Because I heard that there was a doping scandal with dogs <laughs> in the itinerad, right? Is there a doping scandal for speakers? Is this going to be the new thing? <laughs> so I, I don't really ever address the chemical. I just let people know that there are chemical options. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't promote it. I don't suggest it. But for example, with blushing, uh, it's a question I'm asked about a lot. And the blushing is really because of the wider capillaries and the blood rushing to them that causes that, that reddish coloring. Certain skin types have it. Certain people have it. It is just the way your body is made. And you can't change that. 
There are chemical things that you can do about it. But the truth is with blushing, it is mental more than just physical. Hmm. It's like gingers. We have freckles. You can't get around that fact. So you might as well own it and love it and create a sense of energy through your freckles and your blushing. It's owning (laughs) our unique charms and accepting them and managing what we have to manage, but embracing what we can embrace, right? So the freckles could be your trademark. Yeah. And it's understanding what is like something I want to kind of manage versus something I want. I'm four foot 10. Here's a great yeah. example. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I usually say four foot 10 and a quarter because, you know, I'm still growing. <laughs> every every uh, inch counts at that stage. <laughs> every, every bit counts. And I, instead of trying to hide it or pretend it, I don't let any podiums on my stage because you can't see me behind them. And I embrace it. It's part of the, the me that they get. And I love it when somebody comes in and it's acts surprised when they tell me that I'm short as if I did not know. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I've done something similar, but with me being ginger and having, you know, a red beard and, uh, and my freckles. And sometimes that word ginger is associated with positivity and high energy and optimism. So I dubbed myself the ginger MC for like a master of ceremonies and mic control. And I do a lot of stage, uh, you know, stage time, whether it's events or speaking. So I am the ginger MC and I've like recouped that. And uh, I've had so much fun spinning that into everything and actually have a business card that just says hashtag ginger MC. And I can sort of control that brand message as well. So that's another perfect example. That's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Is not everything that is part of our uniqueness has to be squashed. And I think that's a great crushing blow to the whole stereotype that you either have to be attractive, you have to have a a certain physique, that you have to have a certain voice. I mean, look at you. You couldn't get past three rows and now you're talking to, you know, thousands of people. So I think this idea of an authentic style supersedes how you look, how you talk. I mean, there's some very powerful speakers that do not fit that mold. And it's only because they they take ownership of it and reclaim it. That's cool. I think in addition to our authentic style, the only other thing that we really need to be effective is our message. We need to understand why we're up there and why it matters not just to us, but why it matters to whoever's listening. And if we have those two things, you know, you're, you're golden. Yeah. Okay. So here's a, here's a, here's a pop quiz question. So that sounds great and it's easy, but I still see, and I hear people struggling with this concept of having multiple messages. What, what are your thoughts towards that as a concept? Do you help to coach people to be like the super narrow focused on one particular thing that you just can super own or be the jack of all trades that has a whole set of pocket speeches for a variety? What are your thoughts from the people that you work with? Oh, this is such a good question for me because I have been on both sides of this. Well, actually, I've probably <laughs> been, I've been more on the jack of all trades side, I would probably say. Okay. I am a tangential brain that is energized by change. And so I love doing different talks. I have a platform of connection, but I have five different keynotes that I give regularly that, you know, one is called the relationship driven leader. It is about connection to your team. One is called relationship networking. One is called you the brand. It's connection to how you want to be known and seen. One is called boost your likability, boost your business. It is still about how we do that through relationships and through connection. So it took a really long time for me personally to find that common thread. And what I would tell the people out there who feel that they're a bit of a jack of all trades is think about what you love the best, what you are most excited and passionate about. And it still might be a half a dozen things. And then think about what those things have in common. Hmm, I like that. And that's, you know, 
it's the umbrella. I used to, on my, on my cards right now, I need new cards. My cards, like I call myself, I think a communication. Oh wait, I'm looking at my card. What did I say? Yeah, do it. You know, this is a good pop quiz card, right? Like grab your card. Tell me what it says right now. So it says amongst other things, communication strategist. And my umbrella used to be communication because I think that communication is the foundation of everything. Yeah, I agree. But that is really, really broad. And everyone talks about the riches and the niches and, and narrow, narrow, narrow. Personally, again, this comes down to who you are. If you're somebody who wants that one talk and that's the only one you do and that's your thing and you got it and that's great for you, that's just not who I am. Right. That said, I did feel the need to find a way to thread the things that I do regularly together. Mm, I like that, the concept of threading. So that you're still weaving the same garment. It just happens to be one that's a little bit more funky and fresh and artistic because you've got like, you know, weird stitch patch over here. But it's all connected, essentially, is what you're saying. It enables me to customize to my audiences. It enables me to offer them different angles. A lot of There's a lot of content that is in all five of the talks. Get Known, Get Connected, Get Ahead was literally pulling from two or three other talks because they wanted this piece of that and this piece of that. And I, so I created this mishmash of it. Right. You know, and so it just gives you a little bit more flexibility of reaching different audiences or if they want to have you come back, giving them something different. But if you ask what's Michelle about, Michelle's about connection. Gotcha. You can maybe make up a word that has connection and communication. It's com- communi- communi- connection. I'm a communi- connection expert. Hashtag communi-connection. I have no idea how to spell that. So the hashtag might not be the best, but hashtag communi-connection. Yeah. Connect to communicate. I don't know. Um, <laughs> connect to communicate. I actually, <laughs> one of my taglines is communicate to connect. It's in my my speaker packet. The thing that kind of goes across the bottom bar is communicate to connect. Okay. Communi-connection. Communi-connection. So. Okay, that everyone's challenge is to come up with a really good one for me. I my new cards, I think I'm going to put communication. I'm sorry, connection instigator. That that's going to be my new title. <laughs> so, uh, okay, there's another Twitter challenge. Anybody out there who has a good phrase for Michelle's business card, I want you to tweet us up and let her know. You know, it's interesting. What is the number one thing I think people out there can do to? start to increase their platform, their fee structure, their reach is talk about what you're doing. And whether it is giving a small pro bono talk to a group of people who, whose tentacles will kind of think of the octopus, right? So for example, for me, it's SHRM, the Society for Human Resources Management. Everyone in that room is HR. When I was doing training, I would do free talks for SHRM at their chapters. And those are all potential clients. And so even if there's only 80 people in the room or 50 people in the room, those are 50 potential clients. Hmm. So that's a really great mechanism. Think about the organizations that are with the people who will be hiring you. I will tell you, I got hired last year, actually this, this calendar year, from somebody who saw me at SHRM over two years ago. And I also got hired this year from somebody who saw me at Baruch College, again, doing a free panel for students. Five years later, she was working at a bank. Wow. Five years. So that she, you obviously made her feel something that she remembered, right? She's not going to remember the speech, but she remembered the way you made her feel when she left the video game with a high score. Yeah. And I was amazed because she's like, you're not going to remember me, but, and I remembered the talk and I didn't remember her like concretely, but she 
gave me enough information for me to go, oh, you were the one who escorted me here. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and five years later, I did a keynote for her bank for her women's group. Wow. And so it is laying a lot of groundwork building again, it comes to connection, it comes to relationship, it comes to talking about your passion about what you're doing, whether it's talking to one person on the playground, and you don't know what, who, where they work, or who they're married to or who their best friend is. And don't forget when you're talking about it to look for opportunities to make an ask. And I'm hesitant to say that because I don't want you to ask too early too quickly. Right? It sounds like it's very much this relationship based, you know, fundamentally being this idea of likability, but staying in your house until you're ready and in the right mind space to do it. But this idea of sort of like a grassroots marketing where you're in the arcade and you're sort of going around and, and scoping things out, but actually talking with people as opposed to just trying to get them to come over and play the game you want them to play. It's like a direct, indirect approach. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with the, the pinball analogy here, trying to find my landing on it. But I would almost think about it as, you're playing the game, but nobody's watching you play the game. Oh. And you're amazing, but nobody knows it. So maybe it's inviting somebody. Gotcha. There you go. So yeah, building a relationship with them before, maybe maybe it's this, you know, maybe you invite them, you build a relationship with them, and then you end up at the arcade. And then instead of just going, hey, hey, look at me play this game, you might find out what they're interested in, see what games they want to play. And if that game happens to be something close or similar to what you're playing, after they play first, you can be like, hey, let me give a spin. And all of a sudden, she's a pinball wizard. And you're like, wow. <laughs> and they're like, wow, you're good at that. You're like, wow, I, I, yeah, I really like this. And this is what I do. Here's my message. This is like what I practice. And then that sparks the memory that could be that potential keynote to five years later, I guess, right? Yeah, it's all of those little moments that, that build up. And I know that's hard because relationship networking is a long-term approach. And we want the paycheck now and we want the gig now. But speaking specifically is a much longer ramp up or close in terms of, you know, I have things booked in 2018, you know, so there's sometimes I'm booked a year out, but with training or smaller talks, maybe it's only three months. So looking for those interim opportunities. And sometimes, for example, I did a breakfast talk for my alma mater at Lehigh, and I did that talk as a give back to the school, but then I was asked to do a full day training and I was paid for it. And now I'm doing it again because it was well so well received because people who heard the talk wanted to come to the training. They couldn't do that one. Now we're doing so again, it is about kind of that that flow and kind of riding the wave and knowing that there's a lot of different platforms. It's great to think about being on that stage that is six feet off the ground and a sea of people in front of you. But I will tell you, one of my favorite talks was at a university where I was in a room that should have only had 200 people, but we had probably about 300 people stuffed to the gills, 10 deep in the doorway, lining the walls, and I'm still trying to walk through the crowd. And at the end of it, somebody said to me, you made that feel like a graduate seminar, meaning there was only 30 to 40, 50 people in the room because everybody felt included. Those are some of the most invigorating experiences. And I will tell you that I hired people out of that audience because they reached out to me. Right. It's about the connections that you make at every little place. And what I would also say is you just don't know who you're talking to. I was on a field trip last year to a beach with our class and another class mom was telling me, oh yeah, I was able to do the field trip because I'm in between jobs and, and I was here and now I'm here and oh, don't you do this? Oh, when I get here, I'll be, I'm going to be working in the women's group. I'm going to want to talk to you. And this was on a field trip for school. Wow. 
Right. You don't know when or who you're talking. You don't know. You don't know who you're talking to when that will matter, right? So I'm, I'm going back to that first piece of advice, and I know it's evolved into multiple pieces of advice, but the first piece of advice was to talk, to tell people what you're excited about, what you're doing, what you're working on, not, hey, this is what I do. I am this and that and the other thing. It's, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm actually doing a survey right now because I'm trying to understand this. And then you pique somebody's curiosity and it evolves a conversation. Okay, so I have the longest hashtag in the history of the world that I believe is an alliteration that I think wraps up this piece of advice. You ready for this? Okay. Hashtag making mood memory moments make more money. Makes more money. Oh, I like that. So I like this idea of a mood memory, right? But if you're talking with people, you're really sharing with them a feeling. You're, you're creating this environment in a conversation. So if you, by making mood memory moments makes more money. Hashtag. I like it. <laughs> and for those people who want to dive deeper into mood memory, it's chapter eight. <laughs> awesome. And so if somebody were to find you, find your book online, where's the best way for them to go? What would you like to have a first touch point for them if they're going to come find you? The easiest touch point is my website, which is Michelle with two L's, Tillis, T-I-L-L-I-S, Letterman, L-E-D-E-R-M-A-N.com. And from there, you can get everywhere. You can see links to all my books. You can go to my YouTube channel and see my videos. I do these one-minute success shorties. Uh, you can get to my blog. You can get to my LinkedIn, my professional Facebook, because you're not going to get to see my hair in the 80s on my personal page. It's like your arcade. The way you described it, it's just like, this is your arcade. You've got all these places and things that you can go and play depending on what you're after. And it's probably entertaining and fun at the same time. I, I can't get this uh, this analogy out of my head, but I love it. So go to your website and uh, basically go to your arcade. Everybody gets to go play and have fun. And you can get anywhere from there. And if you do go to my website slash gift pack, you can actually download a chapter of the book. You can take a networking assessment. I have a, a video series that I'll email you. Like there's a bunch of free stuff that I give away if you so choose. And that's on the gift pack. So your website forward slash, what is it again? Gift pack, all one word. All right. I'm going to go get that. And I hope that it's chapter eight because I want to make mood memory moments more often to make more money and uh, <laughs> tap into my ginger MC authentic style. But hey, this has been a lot of fun. I mean, we had no idea who we were when we started. And I think I've got a really good idea of, of what's going on. You are the coolest, shortest speaker I know. Officially. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'll be your ginger speaker friend until we continue to connect the dots and maybe we'll share the stage sometime. Well, I just colored my hair. I'm a little more ginger than I was yesterday. <laughs> awesome. And, and I like to tell people that, you know, I am a proud ginger. I think that we are a very underrepresented minority out there. But the good news is ginger at the end of the day is a state of mind. So we can all be a little more ginger. I love it. All right. Well, hi, Michelle, this was amazing. And the show ends as soon as you say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> all right. We'll see you next time, everybody, here at the World of Speakers podcast with Ginger MC, your ginger host. Goodbye.